I spoke with Peter Orr yesterday, which is always a privilege, and I didn't ask for any tips about coming to speak, but he offered, and he said, do not be over 20 minutes. That is the very key thing. To go over 20 minutes, people get very agitated and upset. So I will try my very best to be not over 20 minutes. I think he was sort of joking. But um, <laughs> here we are, Malachi chapter 1. My text is very simple. Verse 2, I'd be grateful if you kept it open. Verse 2, I have loved you says the Lord. I've chosen this text, honestly, because I preached on it two weeks ago, but also I think because it is such a good text for all of us as we begin our day amidst all the demands of our classes and essays and sermons and meetings and people and all the flurry of ministry and the right pressures that we have to go back to our basics, go back to the very foundation that he has loved us and he has chosen us. And what we are doing comes out of that he has first shown us his love. We started this series in Malachi at St. Thomas's, not Malachi, as somebody suggested to me as we were preparing, but Malachi, who is my messenger, and Malachi, who is the Lord's messenger to his people, who preached seven sermons over the course of this prophecy. And he was addressing the Israelites, as you will know, at a particular time after the exile from Babylon. The exile, just to remind us, as Andrew Sheed have no doubt taught us recently, 586 BC, the exile has happened for Judah. They return through the miraculous decree of the Persian Emperor Cyrus. And the, the beginnings of the return are there in 538 BC. And the temple then that has been destroyed by Babylon has been rebuilt now in 515 BC. And Malachi's prophecy comes a couple of decades after that, perhaps a little bit more, maybe in the 480s BC. We can't be absolutely sure, but 30 to 40 years after the return. It's important to realize that this group, this minority returned group, is exactly that. This is the keenest of the keen, not the rest who stayed in Babylon and built their lives, but those who gave up their lives and their businesses at great cost to go to the economically deprived, ruined land of Israel in order to begin again the relationship with the Lord, to institute the sacrifices, to again worship the Lord in his land. And the reason they did so was because they were animated by this great promise that we see in the prophets of what would happen upon the return from exile, the messianic golden age, when wine would be dripping, new wine would drip from the mountains, and prosperity and peace would ensue under the rule of a great king. But the reality in Malachi is that the Messianic Golden Age has not yet come. They are not under a Davidic king. They're under a Persian ruler. They still experience hardship. There's hints of a famine in chapter 3, and they still live with injustice in their land. And that has left them jaded and cynical and doubting God's love. Hence these opening words. God says, I have loved you, verse 2, but you say... And the tone is cynical and jaded and disappointed. How have you loved us? And what we see unfold in the rest of the book is this doubt of God's love. And it has caused them to slip back from their initial zeal, which drove them back into the land, into half-hearted, second-rate relationship with God, compromised with the world around and faithful, faithlessness to a faithful God. And that's why Malachi begins his book in this way, with this strong emphasis and reminder that I have loved you. 
says the Lord, because it is only once they grasp the reality and depth of his undeserved love will they ever be able to return, which is the message of Malachi, to return to me, will only happen as they recognise the love of the Lord for them. And in these opening verses, he proves his love to them in two ways. First, he points back in time to what he has done in the past for them. And second, he points forward in time to what he will do them do for them. So first, we can know God's love for us because he has chosen us. Because he has chosen us. The Lord says, I have loved you. Israel says, prove it. And God takes them back to his decision years and years and years ago to choose their ancestor Jacob ahead of his brother Esau as the object of his love. Verse 2, but you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord. Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. We know from Genesis 25 there were two boys, of course, in Rebekah's womb. Esau and Jacob. And between those brothers, against the natural order, God chose the younger upon whom to set his love. I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. Esau's descendants would become the nation of Edom, the brother of Israel that lay to the south, that Malachi speaks of there in verse 4. And just like Esau, their forefather, they hated God and showed their hatred for God through their constant opposition and hatred of Israel, God's chosen. We might be shocked by the harsh language, but of course it is entirely and appropriately right and no surprise. Hatred for those who oppose the God of the universe, the creator and sovereign king, is what is deserved, a holy and righteous hatred. The surprise is not that God says, Esau I hated, but that he says, Jacob I loved. And again, we know the history of Jacob and that he certainly did not deserve the love of God. Jacob's deceiver is a deceiver by name and a deceiver by nature. And the history of his descendants, who Malachi is now addressing, as we know and as we've read this morning, is a constant litany of faithless, faithlessness to their living God. In some sense, they were more deserving of hatred because of the privileges they were given. But their history was one of God persisting in faithfulness and love to them. The people Malachi was addressing looked at their outward circumstances at that time and they doubted God's love. But God says to them, I have loved you. And I've loved you by choosing you, by electing you, though you were no different to your brother, though you were utterly undeserving of my love, part of the same sinful, rebellious humanity born of Adam. Paul in Romans chapter 9 verse 11 says, before either did good or bad, I chose you simply because I loved you. I made you my own. I persisted with you despite your sin. I continue to bless you and I will continue to love you. In verse 3, God points to the current state of Edom and the difference that his love has made. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals. Edom was also exiled 
by the Babylonians, but Israel has been brought back into the land while Edom remains under judgment. It's land, a wasteland. I have loved you, says the Lord, his undeserved election, the evidence of his love. It doesn't take many steps for us to realize how much more that is the case for us. Those who are the heirs of this promise upon whom he has set his electing love in Christ. The descendant of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. I have loved you, says the Lord this morning to us. How have you loved us, we ask? Because I chose you, though you were utterly undeserving. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4 in love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. As I was preparing this passage, I thought this about and reflected on this for myself and my own history. And I traced back in my own personal history and thought how profoundly true this is. The circumstances into which God brought me into this world, the people he put in my path, the places that I went motivated by all sorts of different things, completely apart from him, but at every step, his electing, choosing hand, bringing me to the point that I am now, evidence of his electing love before the beginning of time. And surely we ourselves will know that as we think of our own personal histories, despite what we deserve. I look over at friends and family in similar circumstances, some of them outwardly prosperous, but actually in truth, their lives are, verse 3, a wasteland. And that is me, unless God had set his love upon me before the beginning of time. Out of his love, he chose me to be his. Spurgeon says the surprise isn't that some are chosen by God. The surprise is that any are chosen at all. I don't know if you've come across the canons of George. You don't think of them as pastorally sensitive or warm documents, but actually they are. And listen to what it says here on this truth. Before the foundation of the world, by sheer grace, according to the free good pleasure of his will, God chose in Christ to salvation a definite number of particular people out of the entire human race, which had fallen by its own fault from its original innocence into sin and ruin. Those chosen were neither better nor more deserving than the others, but lay with them in their common misery. Here's the truth. We have plunged ourselves as part of Adam's race into a mire, and God by right should pass over us in his wrath. But instead, by his electing love, he has chosen to set his love on some, such that we might be his. We will spend time wrestling with this doctrine of election. I don't know what it is. Doctrines of grace here too still. No doubt as we go into the night and over lunch about how this doctrine works and how it can be true and uh, thinkers in the past. But in the end, it is a doctrine not for speculation, but for adoration. If after your discussions about the truth of God's electing work in Christ, you do not end in your knees in awe, at what God has done. You've misunderstood this truth. Well, think about what the prayer book says in Article 17. Our election in Christ is full of sweet, pleasant, and unspeakable comfort to godly persons. Not speculation, but adoration. Not pride, but humility, profound humility, 
those who are reformed Christians, ought to be the most humble of all. And of course, if this morning we have our trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, it is not because of anything we have done. It is only because he has chosen us despite our sin and given us the gift of faith to put our trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. May even be here in this illustrious gathering, some who are this morning doubting your election. The answer to that, of course, is not to look within at our sin, but to look outward at Christ. And as you do that, recognize that that is only possible because he first set his love upon you before the beginning of time. You know the illustration that there are two doors as you walk uh, towards, and one says, choose this day whom you will serve, the Lord or yourself. And on that day, you walk through the door that says, I will serve the Lord. But then as you go through, a voice calls out, says, look behind you. And you look behind, and it says, I chose you before the beginning of time. And that is the paradox, isn't it? It's beyond our understanding, but our choice of him was only ever because he chose us. How can we know God loves us this morning? It is because he first chose us. But secondly, it is also because he will, future, save us. Did you notice at the end of verse 3, Malachi describes what God has done to Edom. Like Israel, they'd been subject to destruction at the hands of Babylon. But unlike Israel, their efforts to return to their land and rebuild would never succeed. Verse 4, if Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may rebuild, but I will tear down. They will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. And then in verse 5, God points to a future day, a coming day of judgment for Edom when they would finally be wiped out off the face of the earth forever. Verse 5, your own eyes shall see this Israel, that is, the coming destruction of Edom, and you shall say on that day, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. Now, of course, the event is not recorded in the scriptures, but it is clearly the case. There is no Edomite empire today. And we know that in 312 BC, Edom was destroyed by the Nabataeans. God's promise of a future judgment day in the days to come came true. And the judgment of their brother nation, Edom, was evidence of God's love for them. Because again, as they looked at burning Edom, as that nation was destroyed, they should have looked over and seen that that is precisely what they deserved if it wasn't for the electing love of God. We step aside for a moment and think that is true of every single human society and empire that sets itself in opposition to God. Every single one in human history, time and time again, will not succeed in their opposition to Almighty God. My old boss in London used to illustrate it by saying, you go over to the British Museum in London and you see the relics and the remnants of the great empires of the world. Go into room 23 and you see the great trinkets of the once impressive Babylonian Empire. And you go over to room 72 and there is all the prizes and the relics of the Persian Empire. And then into room 87 
and you see the great coins and the designs and the impressiveness of the Roman Empire. And one day you will go into room 121 and you will see the great relics of the American Empire, perhaps a MAGA cap or something like that. <laughs> or you go forward into room 127 in a few hundred years and the, the computer chips and the, I don't know what to say, something could be very controversial, the great Chinese Empire. I noticed he never used to say the relics of the British Empire. That was something, obviously, that he f failed to recognize. <laughs> but that is true, isn't it? Ever since Babel, man has set himself in opposition to God, sought to build his empire against God, but God will not have it, with one exception. There is one kingdom and one king and one eternal empire that will never fail, populated by one chosen people upon whom God has set his undeserved love. How have you loved us? Israel says, answer, you will see one day with your own eyes the judgment poured out on Edom. And on that day, you will realize that is what you deserved, and you will realize that I have loved you profoundly and to the end. And again, it doesn't take much for us to realize that that future judgment that Malachi speaks of, the day of the Lord, in chapter 3, is a day that is, has come and is coming one day, where all opposition to the sovereign king of the universe will be put down. And here is the thing for us this morning, as we ask that question, how have you loved us? To look forward in time to that terrifying day, and it is a chilling prospect, on the day when the sheep and the goats are led out, and as we look aside, and see the goats being led out to their final destination, horrifying though that is, we will recognize that is what we deserved and the Lord has set his love upon us such that we can enter his kingdom and experience his glory. Solemn thing to consider, but profoundly true. And on that day, like Israel, we will say, Great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. So this morning, a word to us. I have loved you, says the Lord. Amidst all of the challenges and busyness and stresses and strains of our day ahead, this is a word to us. How have you loved us, we ask? Well, first of all, looking back in time, before the beginning of time, in love, he predestined us. You are only here this morning doing what you're doing because he first set his love upon you. True for all of us. How have you loved us? We look forward to the future. That terrifying day, that solemn day, when one day we will see what we deserved being poured out on others and recognize in humility and a profound gratitude that he has indeed loved us. 19 minutes. <laughs> Let's pray. I have loved you, says the Lord. We pray, our Father, this morning that this truth would be written on our hearts, 
as we go about what we do, that we would recognise that though we are utterly undeserving, you have set your love upon us and that you will love us to the very end. We pray that you'd enable us to rest this day in this great truth. In Jesus' name, amen.